Story 12 of The Human Boy and the War by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 12 for the Red Cross. Of course, being for the Red Cross, we were jolly well paid for all our trouble by knowing what a tremendous lift we had given the Red Cross in general. But somehow we felt that, if anything, too much was made of the wonderful result and too little of us who had done it because you see if a chap in the trenches covers himself with glory as they so often do it is noted down to the chap's credit and he gets a dcm or dso or a vc but in our case as tracy rather neatly put it we weren't so much as mentioned in dispatches and the bitter irony was that merivale fairly rung with the fame of dr dunstan whereas the truth was that we did everything and dr dunstan far from urging us on really threw cold water on the whole show and up to the last moment feared we were in for a grisly failure instead of a most extraordinary success there was a good deal of difference of opinion afterwards as to who sprang the idea and on the whole i don't think any one chap could take the credit it was too big a thing for one chap's mind and you might say nearly everybody in the fifth and sixth had a hand in it it grew and grew till it reached the stage of asking dr dunstan and after he had conferred with brown and fortescue and old peacock he reluctantly agreed and then it grew by leaps and bounds till it became the wonderful thing it was the idea was to give an entertainment for the funds of the red cross and blades believed it would be a better and finer entertainment if we did it absolutely on our own without any help from the masters whatever a few faint-hearted chaps thought not but they were overruled for as briggs pointed out there was no entertaining power whatever in the masters the only one who would have been any good in that way was hutchings who sang remarkably well in a bass voice of great depth but he was at the war and none of the others had any gift that could lure a paying audience no doubt they might have tried but as tracy said you couldn't ask people to pay good money just for the doubtful pleasure of seeing them trying so it was settled that as there was a great deal of mixed power of amusing an audience in the school we could do it without any assistance and fortescue supported this and advised the doctor that we should be given a free hand but peacock of all people doubted and brown who wanted to shine himself in some way thought we ought to have him and fortescue to give a backbone to the show what he was prepared to do by way of backbone we didn't ask what he did do when the time came was to show the people to their seats and his evening dress which we had not seen before was worth all the money if not more anyway fortescue got the doctor to let us do everything without help and the end justified the means as saunders very truly said though at one time it rather looked as if it might not it was announced in public that the scholars of merivale were going to give an entertainment for the red cross before christmas breaking up and when all was decided we had two clear months for the preparations owing to the war and one thing and another we didn't have much football that term and the show got to be the great idea in everybody's mind so much so in fact that owing to an utter breakdown in geography in the lower fourth there was a threat from headquarters that the whole thing would be knocked on the head if the work was going to suffer so we gave the lower fourth some advice on the subject and told them not one of them should do anything if they didn't buck up of course the great problem was who should be in the show and who should not that was a question for the sixth 
and it proved a very difficult problem because there were immense stores of talent at merivale and some of the chaps best fitted to entertain a paying audience by their great gifts absolutely refused to appear whereas strangely enough others quite useless in every way were death on appearing we even had one or two letters from mothers written to the committee of the merivale concert fairly groveling to us to let their sons do something of course we ignored these though pegram with his usual strategy advised us to give young tudor a show of some sort because his mother and father were worth many thousands and would doubtless buy dozens of front seats if tudor did anything publicly so in one item of the performance which was a scene from the merchant of venice we let tudor and certain other kids come on in the crowd we also let cornwallis and towler sing a duet not so much because it was a thing to pay to hear but because of their great adventure on foster day when by a fluke they weren't drowned and so possessed a passing interest in merivale the program needed a fearful lot of thought and we altered it many times the first program would have taken about three days to get through and tracy said as it wasn't a wagner cycle we'd better try and cram the show into three hours and Briggs said there would be encores, which must be allowed for, and I remembered that there must be an interval, because on these occasions women want something to drink about halfway through, and men want both to drink and smoke also, and if they are prevented from doing these things, they often turn against the performance, and the last state of that show is worse than the first. I am Thwaites, by the way, and like Percy Minor, I hope that I may go on the stage some day, being much inclined to do so. But his father is a professional actor, and so he has a better chance than me, mine being a government official in London who never goes to the theatre, always being too tired to do anything after his day's work. I recite when I get the chance, and have already acted several times. I also write poems i did not push myself forward in the least it was agreed by a sort of general understanding except in the mind of percy minor that i should play shylock in the trial scene from the merchant of venice and williams who is pretty and had many a time been rotted for his girl-like eyes and eyelashes now found that his hour had come for he was going to play portia and we hoped his beautiful appearance might carry him through though at rehearsal it was only too apparent his acting would not the first part of the show was to end with a shakespearean impersonation but this was not all though of course the cream of the night we had in the second half an original satire in one act written by tracy and entitled the white feather this would be the concluding item and as we finally decided that we would have twelve separate items that left ten to find there were some obvious things like percy minimus who had a ripping voice and was accustomed to singing both in and out of chapel so knowing he was considered class we put him down for a song and the school glee singers were also rather well thought of and we gave them two items this only left seven performances and after we had subtracted most of the chaps who were going to perform in the plays there was still an immense amount of mixed ability to choose from of course rice had to be in it though in his usual sporting way he said he could do nothing but as he was the best boxer in the school and almost as good as a professional flyweight we felt no show would be complete without him and it was arranged he should box three exhibition rounds with bassett as briggs said with people who pay money you must give everybody something they will like 
and though the people who would come to see shakespeare acted might not be at all the same people who would come to see rice hammer bassett yet there it was we didn't want to disappoint anybody because the great thing with a successful entertainment is to make everybody thoroughly feel that they have had their money's worth as mitchell pointed out he was going to take the money and sit in the box and give out the tickets he could have done other things but chose that himself having great natural ability and everything of a financial sort and as all the tickets were numbered we felt it was safe besides for the red cross nobody would let his financial ability lead him astray so to speak percy minor the son of the famous professional actor also wished to play shylock but was put down for a comic song an art in which he excelled and tracy wanted to write it for him and make it topical but we knew tracy's satire and felt it would not do besides he'd already written a whole play as it was and was performing the chief part in it so we let percy minor choose his own song and he chose one of albert chevalier's which blended pathos and humour in a very wonderful way but was difficult this left five items and it seemed almost a shame to leave out so much talent but we finally decided on abbott for a conjuring entertainment him being a flyer at that art and on nicholas who has the great gift of lightning calculation though strange to say a fool in everything else he stands with his back to a blackboard and can divide or add in his head and if you read him out ten figures and then ten more to subtract from them he can do it in a moment and no doubt he will make his living in this way though it is a science that is utterly useless in the world at large allowing for cornwallis and towler there were only two items left and i had the good luck to remember there was so far nothing about the red cross in the whole show so we asked fortescue if he would allow a recitation of his famous poem on that subject and he consented if he was allowed to coach the boy who did it we gladly agreed to this and forrester was decided upon for the boy though he would rather have given his well-known and remarkable imitation of natural sounds such as a cock crowing or a bottle of ginger beer popping or a man with a cold in his head or a distant military band it was decided therefore that if forrester got an encore he might give the imitations but he didn't so they were unfortunately lost though many a paying audience would have liked them better than the recitation splendid as it was for the last item of all it was almost impossible to choose between about ten chaps and at last after voting in secret several times the sixth got it down to young hastings who could play the fiddle in a manner seldom heard from a kid of nine years old and weston who was prepared to black his face and play his banjo finally we decided for weston because he was the eldest and would be leaving next term but one whereas hastings being only nine was bound to have many future chances of appearing with his fiddle so that was the program and even when drawn out and written down it was pretty staggering but when actually printed in regular program form it was wonderful and for my part i didn't see how the big schoolroom would hold half the people who were bound to come in fact i suggested giving two or even three performances on consecutive nights but this was not approved of being as you may say historical i will here insert the program the price was threepence, or what you liked to give above that sum. Many gave more. Some got copies for nothing, owing to the program kids losing their heads about change. 
it appeared in this way on pink paper faintly scented and nothing was charged for the scenting by the printers so i suppose the scent was their contribution to the red cross fund for the red cross on the seventeenth day of december next by kind permission of dr dunston the scholars of merivale will give the following entertainment in the great hall of merivale school at seven thirty p m doors open at seven o'clock but reserved seats may be booked and a plan of the room seen at messrs thompson's number four high street merivale the program one song by percy minimus son of the world-famous actor thomas percy two conjuring by abbott using live rabbits live goldfish etc three three rounds of exhibition boxing by rice flyweight champion and bassett n b the rounds will be of two minutes duration four glee singing by the school glee singers five recitation the cross of red words published in the times newspaper by mr fortescue of merivale school reciter forrester six the trial scene from the merchant of venice by william shakespeare dramatis personae as follows shylock thwaites the duke pegram antonio saunders bassanio preston graziano percy minor salario travers minor nerissa percy minimus portia williams magnificos tudor forbes minimus hastings and five others scene venice a court of justice n b the scene will conclude with the exit of shylock an interval of ten minutes part two seven glee singing by the school glee singers the three chafers by request eight comic song percy minor son of the great actor thomas percy nine lightning calculation nicholas introduced by thwaites must be seen to be believed ten coon interlude with banjo weston eleven duet Towler and Cornwallis, both nearly drowned last summer on Foster Day. 12. A satire in one act by Tracy entitled The White Feather. Dramatis Personae, Captain Harold, Van Sittert, Maltravers, B.C. Tracy, General Sir Henry Champernon, K.C.B., Blades, A Policeman, Briggs, Miss Sophia Flapperkin, Williams, Scene, Trafalgar Square, Time, The Present, god save the king booking office mitchell well that was the program and seeing the front seats were only half a crown there didn't seem much chance of anybody not getting their money's worth i could say a great deal about the rehearsals which were very difficult owing to the question of scenery and finally after many suggestions we decided merely to have wings and leave the rest to the imagination because we couldn't get within miles of a court in venice and trafalgar square was equally out of the question and percy minor said that really classy stage managers like granville barker relied less and less on scenery and that the very highest art was to go back to elizabethan times and just stick up what the scene was on a curtain and if people didn't like it they could do the other thing so we went back to elizabethan times but we had a professional man from plymouth to make us up for shakespeare and he did it professionally and we were rather dazzled ourselves at what we looked like on the night seen close you're awful but of course it's all right from the front the dresses for shakespeare were also professional and we had help for without the matron and nellie dunston and minnie dunston and a maid or two the dresses would not have fitted and so caused derision but they did well and we looked very realistic though my jewish gabardine was too long to the last 
However, nobody noticed, though naturally they did notice when Antonio's beard carried away, and it spoiled the pathos, because some fools laughed, instead of taking no notice, as any decent chaps would have. Well, of course, the excitement was to see how the half-crown seats went off at Dowson's, and they weren't gone in a moment by any means. You could book both half-crowners and eighteen pennies, which came next, and people put off their booking a good deal. But when the program was out, the booking improved, and five people booked in one day. It was rather interesting to hear who had booked, and Mitchell was allowed to go to the shop every morning after school to know how things were going. Sir Neville Carew, from the manor house, took five half-crown seats in the front row, and Dr. Dunstan himself took the next five. This news we greeted with mingled feelings, yet, as Mitchell pointed out, he might have had them for nothing, which was true. The masters all took half-crown seats dotted about the big hall, and when Briggs asked Brown why they had done this instead of sitting together, Brown said, To applaud your efforts, Briggs, and suggest a consensus of opinion if we can. As a matter of fact, we didn't want their wretched applause when the time came, for we got plenty without it. The most sensational person to take a half-crown seat was old Black from next door. He had always been our greatest enemy, and hated us, and he never gave anything back that went over his wall, and made us pay instantly if we did any damage, or broke a pane of glass, or anything. Yet there he was. He sat in the second row, and not a muscle moved from first to last, and he never clapped once. Yet, extraordinary to say, the most remarkable thing about the whole performance had to do with old Black, though the amazing affair didn't come out till next morning. Mitchell calculated that if every seat was taken, we should clear thirty-four pounds odd, and he rather hoped the programs would bring in about thirty-six. From that, however, had to be subtracted the cost of the dresses and the professional man from Plymouth, and also the cost of the programs and the piano man. It looked as if we should be good for a clear thirty pounds, but only if the house was full. Happy to relate it was, and many people who did not book at all came and took their tickets at the door, and the one-bob part was packed. In fact, a good many stood all through, including those interested in Merivale and humbler ways, such as the tuck-woman and the ground-man and the drill-sergeant and many other such-like people. When, therefore, after the interval for refreshments, Dr. Dunstan got up and said we had taken thirty-seven pounds four shillings, there was great cheering, and most did not hide their surprise. A reporter came from the Merivale trumpet, and Mitchell saw that he had plenty of refreshments for nothing, because this was expected by reporters, and much depends on it. He ate and drank well, so we naturally hoped for a column or two about the show, but the cur wrote a most feeble account in three inches of type, and gave all the praise to Dr. Dunstan, so I need not repeat what he said. The truth was as follows, and I shall take the program by its items, and be perfectly fair about it. I don't pretend everything went off as well as we hoped, and some of the chaps didn't come off at all. But on the other hand, many did, and the failures also got a friendly greeting. And even if you make a person laugh quite differently from what you expected, it's better than if he doesn't laugh at all. Besides, we had to remember that everybody had paid solid cash, so it wasn't like a free show, where people have got to be pleased, or pretend to be, because when you have paid your money, you are free to display your feelings. 
and if people in a paying audience are such utter bounders as to laugh in the wrong places there's no law against it and the performers must jolly well stick it as best they can well of course percy minimus was a certainty and the start was excellent in fact some people wanted to encore him but this did not happen though he would have sung again because the live rabbit which abbott had borrowed from bellamy for his illusions broke loose and dashed on to the platform so when the audience expected percy back instead there appeared a large lop-eared white rabbit with a brown behind it looked of course as if abbott had already begun to conjure and in fact had turned percy into a lop-eared rabbit anyway the people were so much interested that they stopped encoring percy and seemed inclined to encore the bewildered rabbit then abbott appeared and caught the rabbit which had rather ruined his show by appearing in this way and vernon and montgomery who were his assistants brought on the magic table with various objects arranged upon it for the tricks unfortunately abbott was very nervous which is a most dangerous thing for a conjurer to be and tricks which he would have done to perfection during school hours or in the home circle so to say got fairly mucked up before the paying audience he put on an appearance of great ease but he couldn't manage his voice and he forgot his patter and he also forgot how to palm and kept dropping secret things at awkward moments and making footling jokes to hide his confusion the people were frightfully kind and patient and that made him worse i believe if they had hissed it might have bucked him up he forced a card as he thought on old black and after messing about with a pistol and an orange and a silk handkerchief and some unseen contrivances he made the ace of spades appear in a bouquet of imitation flowers and then challenged old black to show his card which he did do and it unfortunately turned out to be the four of hearts this fairly broke abbott and when it came to bringing the lop-eared rabbit out of a borrowed hat every soul in that paying audience saw him put it in first it is true he tried to conceal it in a mass of other things under a huge flag supposed to be the union jack but the rabbit who had never been conjured with before and hated it kicked violently and defied concealment so to say however abbott got a lot of trick flowers and vegetables and about half a mile of yellow ribbon into that hat at the same time as the rabbit and the audience had not seen him do this so they were slightly mystified and applauded in a weary sort of way he finished up by bringing a bowl of goldfish out of a dice with white spots on it and though there was no great deception it passed off safely for the goldfish then abbott bowed and cleared out and thanks to fortescue who is fond of abbott and said bravo and tried to work up some applause there was no absolute blank when he had done but montgomery and vernon who had to clear up the debris afterwards got one of the best laughs of the night because they became fearfully entangled in the yellow ribbon and thoughtless people were a good deal amused to see it then came rice and bassett in shorts with a new pair of boxing gloves a chair was put in each corner of the stage and the seconds stood by the chairs it was all pure science but only a few chaps at the back appreciated them and when as bad luck would have it rice tapped bassett's ruby in the first round the women part of the audience gurgled and gave little yelps and screams it was nothing but evidently appeared strange and dreadful to them so the doctor stopped the exhibition and that item had to be put down as an utter failure 
Perhaps it was a silly thing to have arranged for a mixed audience, but we had to think of Rice's feelings, and we also knew that scores of contesses and duchesses go to see Carpentier and Wells, and such like in real fights, so we little dreamed anybody would squirm at a harmless exhibition bout that wouldn't have shaken a flea but it was so and consequently the glee singers were a great relief and while they warbled their simple lays the female part of the audience recovered of course we thespians did not see any of these things as we were all making up for the great trial scene Forrester got fair applause for Fortescue's fine poem, but nothing special. As a matter of fact, he forgot the third verse, which was the best, and doubtless Fortescue felt very sick about it, but he was powerless to do anything, though he never much liked Forrester after. Then came the grand item, and it was good in every way, and went very smoothly till just the end. Of course, I can't say anything about my rendition of Shylock. In fact, I didn't feel I had gripped the audience in the least. But chaps told me you might have heard a pin drop, and nobody recognized me who knew me, and many of the people in the audience thought it was one of the masters, and not a boy at all. Pegram rather overreacted the Duke, which is a part that merely wants stateliness and no acting, but he would act, and so forgot his words and hung us up once or twice. In fact, Pegram was not good, but Antonio by Saunders was a very thoughtful performance, and so was Bassanio by Preston. Percy Minor certainly came off as Graziano, and unfortunately he acted so jolly well that in one of his fearful scores off me I forgot the dignified pathos of Shylock and laughed. It was a new reading in a way, but I didn't mean to laugh, and it did a lot of harm, because after that the audience wouldn't take me seriously, though before, I believe, most of them had. It spoiled the illusion of the scene. Portia in the hands of Williams was most beautiful to see, but from the art point of view, awful. He got out his words, however, and just at the end, before my exit, Minnie Dunstan, who had plotted it with him in secret, threw him a bouquet of white chrysanthemums, and the fool picked it up and said out loud, Thank you, Minnie. Of course, after that, my exit went for nothing, and when it was over, I punched his head behind the scenes, while in front, people were laughing themselves silly. We got two calls, and it shows what a force the drama really is, because in the second half of the program, nobody cared a button about such excellent things as Percy Minor's comic song, and though Towler and Cornwallis were mildly applauded, it was only because they happened to be still alive and not dead, and the lightning calculations of Nichols didn't even tempt many men to come away from the refreshments. I dare say many of them were very poor and had to make so many lightning calculations themselves owing to the war that they weren't specially interested in what Nicholas could do. But for Tracy's play they all came, and such applause was never heard within the walls of Maryvale, which shows that the drama still holds its own. The idea of the white feather was certainly very original, and the dialogue very satirical. As the girl with the white feathers, Williams appeared again, in a dress lent him by Minnie Dunstan. 
This was too small in some places and too big in others, but thanks to a huge female hat and a wig of golden hair, Williams made a very fair flapper, though inches too tall for such a creature. He gave a feather to Captain Maltravers, B.C., from Gallipoli, who was in Mufti, and Tracy, with an eyeglass, which he manages fairly well, and a moustache, was frightfully satirical at the flapper's expense, and every point he made went with a roar. Then the flapper stuck a white feather into the frock coat of General Sir Champernon, also in Mufti, and he was not satirical, but got into a frightful rage and gave up the flapper to a policeman. She cried and begged for pardon, and then the V.C. returned and saved her from the general and the policeman and promised to marry her after the war. The house was fairly convulsed and it was really jolly true to nature, so much so that the pianist almost forgot God save the king when all was over. For though a professional and well used to entertainments, he laughed as much as anybody. Then the people came like shadows and so departed, in the words of the immortal bard, and not until next day did the final stupendous thing happen with old black. He looked over the playground wall just before dinner, as he often did, to make a beast of himself about something, and seeing me and Weston and another chap or two kicking about a football, he said to me, Are you the boy Thwaites? And I said I was. Then he said, Come in, Thwaites, I want to speak to you. My first thought was, What had I done? But as I hadn't had any row with old Black for two terms, my withers were unwrung, and I went and he took me into his study and handed me a bit of pink paper with writing on it. "'What's this, sir?' I asked. "'A check for the Red Cross,' he answered. "'A check for twenty guineas to add to the money from your performance last night.' He was scowling all the time, mind you, and looking as if he hated the show. "'I'm sure it's very sporting of you, sir,' I said to old Black. "'Not in the least,' he replied. "'I laughed more last night than I've laughed for fifty years, and I only paid half a crown.' much too little for what i got i was fearfully amazed excuse me sir i said but i didn't see you laugh once no he answered and nor did anybody else when i laugh i laugh inside boy not outside so do most wise men now be off and when you next play shylock let me know if i'm alive i'll come so i went and we cheered old black from the playground he must have heard us but he didn't show up certainly taking one thing with another there are many extraordinary people in the world and you may be surprised at any moment no doubt it was one of those cases of coming to scoff and remaining to pray that you hear about but don't often actually see end of story twelve